Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. So those who want to uh, follow with me in your Bibles, you're welcome to open up the book of Nehemiah. And as I said, we're going to be going through the book of Nehemiah for the next couple of weeks. And I think it's a very appropriate book because uh, Nehemiah was part of a third wave of returning exiles under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 before Christ, the, the um, Israelites, the, the northern kingdom of Israel had already been taken into captivity, and then the southern kingdom of Judah was also taken into captivity to Babylon, beyond the uh, Euphrates. And <clears throat> uh, Jeremiah prophesied that. God said, because you're not keeping the Sabbath years, every seventh year was supposed to be a Sabbath year when the land rested, and the people of Israel weren't trusting God and keeping the Sabbath year, and they weren't doing the sacrifices properly, and they were worshipping idols and doing all kinds of wrong things. And God said, okay, you know, that's it. You know, after 490 years, 70 times 7 years. Okay, you might recognize that number from somewhere else. 70 times 7 years. He said, okay, that's it. I'm taking you out of the land so that I'm going to enforce a Sabbath rest for the land. And Jeremiah actually prophesied that it's going to be 70 years. Those 70 Sabbath years that were missed, God is going to uh, cause the land to enjoy its Sabbath rest while the people are in exile. And... Um, after 70 years, God started bringing the people back. And there were three ways. First, Zerubbabel brought a whole bunch of people back, and they started trying to rebuild Jerusalem and so on. But they weren't very successful And the temple. Uh, then under Ezra, there was a second wave of people, Ezra the priest. There was a second wave of people who came back and tried to rebuild. And at least they were successful eventually under Ezra of rebuilding the temple. Um, and then the third wave, and that's what we're going to read about today, is under Nehemiah, where he brings back... Uh, a whole lot more people, and they rebuild the city of Jerusalem and, and the walls. And it's such a beautiful, such a beautiful account. It's a very powerful account. I mean, it, all kinds of wonderful themes like God's people and the restoration of God's people, God's concern for His people, and God's providential um, ordering of world history and politics in order to um, preserve and, and, and build up his people. Leadership. Leadership is, is a very powerful theme in, in uh, Nehemiah. In fact, so much so that, that there are a lot of people who are not even you know, Christians, you know, business leaders and so on, who write books on leadership based on Nehemiah and on the lessons that Nehemiah um, gives. And, and all kinds of other, you know, prayer is a big theme um, in Nehemiah as well. <clears throat> so like I said, we, we're recognizing the reality that we as individuals and as a community are under construction. And, you know, I, I, I truly believe that, um, you know, when, when that, uh, in, in the kitchen there at the back, when the, when the old uh, oven malfunctioned and there was this, some other short circuit and, it, and the electrical fire started there in the kitchen and burned down the, the foyer, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not, you know, I was a bit shocked when I heard about it and when I started seeing the, the, the photos and stuff on, on social media. But I soon realized as I started praying about it that, you know, I can see God's providence in it, God's hand in it. Um, not only that it gives us an opportunity to partner with the church to, to uh, fix up the all of it, but also that, it, that God is, as it were, giving us a visual aid of us as a community, how we look, spiritually speaking, where we are spiritually speaking and that we are under construction and that we need to embrace that being under construction 
And um, so I, I just put up a few pictures, if you want to see, of uh, <laughs> the fire as it looked when uh, the teacher, seven, oh, well, it was 8 o'clock at night, one Thursday, um, discovered it. They managed to close the fire doors there at the back. Otherwise, you, know, you can imagine if they hadn't closed the fire doors and, and started spraying water and stuff, and the fire had come and, and you know, the wooden floors had caught fire, the whole, the whole wall would have burned down. Uh, but praise God, that didn't happen. And then, then since the end of last year, since December, we've been um, building and uh, constructing. Um, so we, we're going to, for the next couple of weeks, be, talk, uh, be, be talking from the book of Nehemiah about being under construction. And I want you to, to take this opportunity. This is a, <laughs> I almost want to say expensive, <laughs> and, uh, but a, um, a providential opportunity that God is giving us where we can meet in a hall that every week is going to look different. Remember, those of you who were here last week, and the other side wasn't even plastered yet. Next week, they're going to start and they're going to plaster on the, on the, on the outside uh, that wall, and Trevor and them are going to start painting. So next week, when you come back, it's going to look very different. And God is, as it were, giving us an external picture of what He's doing internally in us as individuals and in us as a community. Let's not miss this opportunity to allow God to do what He wants to do in us and through us. I think this is a a really powerful um, opportunity that the Lord is giving us. So let's read from Nehemiah chapter 1. So it says, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, which was in the Persian Empire, the 20th year there refers to the 20th year of the reign of King Artaxerxes, who was the son of King Xerxes, whom Esther married. Okay, so this is about 140 years after the Babylonian exile. And like I said, two waves of, of exiles uh, had already returned to the promised land. And this uh, Artaxerxes was the son of King Xerxes, and Susa was the uh, winter capital of the Persian Empire, who had in, at that time already conquered the Babylonians. It says, I was in the citadel of Susa uh, when Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some, of, uh, some, some other men, and I questioned them about Jerusalem. So notice that he questioned them, okay? And he questioned them about two things. First, about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile, and about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the, uh, and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant. Your servant is praying before you night, day and night. For your servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and laws, uh, the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. 
remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, even then, even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this, your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name or fearing your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. And Lord God, we just want to thank you for your word, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will come and instruct us from your word, Lord, and encourage us from your word, and teach us and show us, Lord, what you are doing in our midst, Lord. We don't want to just do our own thing and then ask you to bless it. Lord, we want to see what you are doing and participate in it. And we pray that you'll show us that from your word, in Jesus' name. Okay, so... Nehemiah, his name actually literally means Yahweh, which is um, translated in our English translation as Lord. Yahweh, or the Lord, has comforted. And it's, it's very interesting. <clears throat> he was used as a f- sort of a comforter for Israel, a deliverer, a, 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 a leader, and a comforter in Israel. But in order to be used by Yahweh, by the Lord, to comfort Israel, his people, the Lord's people, Nehemiah had to go through significant discomfort. And we see some of that here in chapter 1. And that's just the law. That's just the principle. We comfort one another with the comfort that we ourselves have received. And we first have to experience very often discomfort before God can use us to comfort others. Okay, and, and, and we're going we're gonna, to um, talk a lot about that. So we, in this story, we see uh, truth about uh, concern and calling, about prayer and planning, and about comfort in Christ, and I'll, I'll break that down <clears throat> in a little bit. So the first thing we see is that Nehemiah had a deep concern, a deep concern for the people of God and for the city of God. I mean, it's kind of hard to miss it. But just a few things that I want to highlight about that concern that Nehemiah has is it was an active concern. It wasn't a passive concern. It wasn't a, ach, shame, you know, those poor people over there concern and, you know, you know, please help them, Lord, amen, goodbye, you know. It wasn't a passive concern. It was an active concern concern, um, and a concern that caused him to take the initiative. Do you notice when, when his brother uh, came from Judah with his other men, they didn't start telling him about the state of affairs in Israel. He asked them about it. That was how concerned he was. He was the one that raised the topic. So you can see it's not a concern in response to someone else. It's a concern that he has, an active concern, and he's finding out about it. Um, and, and that's the reality. Whatever you're concerned about, you you ask about. Whatever you're concerned about, you find out about. If we're not interested in something, we're not concerned about it. If we love someone and they move to another city or wherever, we phone them. We ask about them. If people come uh, from that city who know them, we say, how are they? How are they doing? 
Why? Because we're concerned about them. Because we care about them. Okay? So, Nehemiah had that active concern, but his, his concern was also a divine concern. Just a few things I want you to, to notice here. The first thing I want you to notice is <clears throat> that his, his concern clearly precedes his question. You know, he asked the question, how's it going with the, the Jewish remnant and, and with Jerusalem? But his concern clearly precedes the question. In fact, it's his concern that causes him to ask the question. So it's not a, it's not a concern that was created by the feedback that he received from the people from Judah. It's a concern that already existed, that precedes his question. And therefore, it must be a concern that comes from God. Because consider this. <clears throat> Imagine, you know, Nebuchadnezzar taking the, the Israelites in 586 before Christ, taking them into captivity to Babylon. Daniel was still a young boy in that time, and he was one of the captives taken away. Now, you can imagine all they knew was Israel, Judah, Jerusalem, their place. They'd taken to Babylonia, which later became part of the Persian Empire, and they know nothing. They don't know the language. They don't know the customs. They don't know how things work. Everything is different. Everything is difficult. <clears throat> Everything has changed. You can understand that they'd want to go back. You can imagine the first couple of years, you know, the people who knew Israel, who knew Judah, who knew the language, who knew the culture, and who felt out of sorts in Babylonia and later in Persia, would have wanted to go back. I mean, w wanted to go back. That, that's obvious. But think about this. This is 140, 100, I think 141 years later. In 445 BC. That happened in 586. This is 445. 141 years later. Nehemiah has known nothing except Persia and Persian culture and Persian, Persian language. He's Persian born and bred. He understands everything. To him, Israel is the foreign country. Judah is the foreign country. Jerusalem is the city he's never seen. The remnant who live there are the people he's never met. And yet... He has such a concern for them as the people of God and as the city of God that he asks, how are they doing? Even though he's never been there, even though he's never met them. Can you see why I say it's a divine concern? It must be a concern that comes from God. That comes from God. And part of what I want to share with you this morning is that every calling... I was um, walking on Thursday with, with Stephen in, in, in Delta Park, and he was saying, you know, uh, he's 40-something, and, and he's got a lot of buddies who, many of them are quite successful and so on, but many of them are also sort of, you know, a bit uneasy. And, and one of the things they talk a lot about is calling, you know, and, and maybe having missed their calling. And, and the reality is, in the world that we live, many people have missed their calling because our world works in such a way that, that we get pushed towards the careers and stuff that will have a lot of um, status, will have a lot of reward, will, have, will make us a lot of money, will make us very rich. Whether that career suits our gift set and whether it's part of our calling or not, that's the direction peer pressure and popular culture pushes us. And so many people go rather for the big money, uh, the, the good job, the status, all that kind of stuff. And they end up being quite successful 
you know, making quite a bit of money, you know, uh, being respected people, but often being very frustrated because they never discovered their calling. And it's sad. It's sad to meet someone at the end of their life who was very good at climbing the ladder to success, only to discover at the end of their life it was leaning against the wrong wall. And all their climbing meant nothing. Now, so calling is a big thing. Calling is an important thing. Each of us has a calling, but here's, here's what I want you to see, and this is, this is really important. Every calling starts with a concern. Every calling starts with a concern. In other words, your, your calling is God's solution to a concern that He has and that He gives you. Every calling, every vision is a solution to a problem. And therefore, if we want to experience our calling, we must make sure that our concerns line up with God's concern. So often, you see, here's, here's the, the, the problem. And maybe I'm getting a bit of, bit of ahead of myself, but let me, let me just mention this. Calling is not comfortable. Because concern is not comfortable. Concern is decidedly uncomfortable. We want to avoid concern. But here's the, here's the problem. If you avoid concern, you avoid your calling. If you avoid concern, you avoid the vision that God has for your life. So Nehemiah's concern was a divine concern. Um, and we must have that same divine... We must make sure that our hearts line up with God's heart and that our concerns line up with His concern. The next one I put up there is, is His concern was a wise concern. Now, why I say that is He asks about two things. He doesn't just ask about the Jewish people, the Jewish remnant, the people of God. He also asks about Jerusalem, the city of God. So He asks about the people of God and the city of God because He's wise enough to know that those two things are linked. And the rest of Scripture, and I'm just going to give you a quick overview of, of this. I don't want to say too much about it, but the rest of Scripture, if you're going to look at it, um, it bears out the reality that God created us as mankind to live in cities. Oh, some of you are like really surprised now, you know. Like, uh, I didn't even want to come here to Joburg, you know, big bad city, Sodom and Gomorrah, and now you're telling me this is what God created us for? Yes, and Nehemiah knew it. You see, God created Adam and Eve initially there were no cities. He created them and put them in a garden. And initially, sort of cities start off a bit bad, you know. Nimrod and those guys built cities, and you have Sodom and Gomorrah. So, so cities start off not being very good. Um, but as time goes on, you'll see that when God sends the Israelites to the Promised Land, they inhabit cities, and they're even cities of refuge. And then he chooses Jerusalem as the city where his name dwells. Remember Nehemiah mentions that in his prayer? The city where he puts his temple, where he, his presence as it were dwells. And if you go on in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul does evangelism and church planting, guess where he goes? Primarily the major cities of the Roman Empire. He didn't go to the little dorpies for, for the most part, to the little uh, villages and stuff. Um, he went to places like Corinth, Thessalonica, Ephesus, Rome, 
Those were the mega cities of the place. When God wanted, you know, Philippi, when God wanted to reach a small little village through him, God had to persecute him and he had, so that he had to flee by night to, to get to the little village. You know? So there, there, were, there, was, there were a few times when Paul was persecuted and he ended up in little villages. And there was one or two times when he was sick and he had to go away from the port cities, you know, at the sea, and he had to go inland. The book of Galatians tells us that. He says, because, because of a sickness, because of an ailment that I first preached the gospel to. Because there were major, mostly little villages in Galatia, you know, places like Derby and, and those places where he then preached the gospel. You know, so God had to allow him to get sick, you know, before he would go. But his normal pattern was to go to the major port cities and preach the gospel there. Because if he could change the cities, he could change the region. Because the little villages went to the port cities in any case to trade. And if he could establish viable churches in the major cities, they would eventually plant churches from those churches to the little villages as well. So his, his church planting strategy was centered on cities. And then fast forward all the way to Revelation, the end of Revelation, and you have a city, the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven. But now it's a garden city. And you see the Garden of Eden, man's primitive needs being met, but then man maturing, and as man mature, he needs a city, but he needs a garden city. So God has, hasn't given up on the idea of a garden. The, the garden idea is still there, but now it's a garden city with a river running through it. Beautiful city. But we, for eternity, are going to be living in a city, the city of God. We were made for cities. Let's not despise Joburg as this big, bad city. Cities aren't inherently bad. In fact, cities are part of God's plan for us. Nehemiah knew that. And that's why I say his concern was a wise concern because he didn't just want what was good for the people of God, but he knew what was best for the people of God is that they live in the city of God where there's a wall of protection. And we, if we have concern, if we want to share God's concern, it must not just be, we must not just be concerned for what God is concerned for, the people of God, but we, it must be a wise concern that recognizes what's best for the people of God is to live in the city of God to live in a city as God intended it to be. And therefore, we must pray not only for the church in the city, but for the city that hosts the church. That God would bless both, because both are part of God's plan. We shouldn't just pray for, for us as a congregation and for all, all the other churches of the Lord Jesus Christ in the city. We should pray for the city that God will use us as his church to be a city on a hill. And I was a city within a city. The city of God within the city of the world. And, and uh, there's a lot more there. I mean, if you just look at the, the contrast between Susa as the city of this world and Jerusalem in, in, in Nehemiah's day as the city of God and just the interaction between the two. Now the two feet of each other. I, I can't say more about that. But I think you get the point that God is concerned with cities. Remember what he said to, to Jonah when Jonah went to Nineveh? He said there are 140,000 people living in this great city of Nineveh who don't know their right hand from their left. Should I not be concerned for it? If I don't have a concern for, for this city of Joburg, I don't share God's heart. His concern was also a deep concern. And we see this because when he hears the news of what's going on, <clears throat> Um, it says he sat down, which was a 
typical Jewish, Jewish posture of mourning. And it says, and I wept. I sat down and I wept. And he said for many days, he mourned and fasted and prayed and sought the face of the Lord. For many days. He was deeply moved. This concern of his was not just a passing casual concern. It was a deep concern. Now, when you read the rest of the book of Nehemiah, you see Nehemiah is by no stretch of the imagination, an over-sentimental or over-emotional guy who just cries at the drop of a hat. Far from that. He was a very strong leader, a very strong man, uh, um, and, and, and he could take a lot of pressure. But he wept in his deep concern for the people of God and the city of God. It caused him to weep. Do you have something that you are so concerned about that it makes you cry? Do you have something that you are so concerned about that it makes you lose sleep? Are you concerned enough for the people of God and the city of God that you are willing to mourn and weep and pray for it? It was a deep concern. And it had to be a deep concern because any concern that becomes a calling, not every concern is a calling concern. Not every concern can result in a, um, a life of vision, if I can put it that way. You know, I have so many uh, people coming to me as a pastor and saying, oh, you know, I have this deep concern for this group or this issue or this generation, you know, youth or whoever else. Um, and, and I'm always hesitant to, to be overly excited initially because I know that there has to be a testing period for that vision. I know any vision that doesn't have a waiting period. You see, when... When Nehemiah receives this concern and he's weep, you know, he hears this report, the very first thing he does is nothing. And if you read beginning of chapter 1, you see for more than four months, he pretty much does nothing. It takes four months between Kislev and Nisan, the Jewish months of Nisan, before he actually you know, brings up the issue with the king and asks for the king's help to go to Jerusalem. For, for more than four months, he does seemingly nothing or very little. I mean, on a practical level, seemingly. And every concern needs that. For a concern, you know, many people, they have this concern, and they just jump in immediately, and then it fizzles out and it dies very quickly. And I've seen that over and over again. Even people who have very good ideas, very deep, very good concerns. You see, but, but here's the question. What's the difference between a good idea and a God idea? What's the difference between... Just a good concern and a God concern. Something that comes from God's heart and for you. And, 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 and here's the difference. A God concern is deep enough so that it lasts and stands the test of time. It stands the test of waiting. And often when we receive a concern from the Lord, our initial knee-jerk reaction is we just want to jump in and do something because that concern is so deep. It makes us weep. And we should resist that temptation. And instead of just jumping in and doing something, we should first pray and plan as we see Nehemiah does. And allow that concern to incubate. So concern gives birth to calling. Concern gives birth to calling. In other words, concern is only the conception of our calling. It's not the birth pains. 
Sometimes we think it's the birth pain because concern feels like birth pains. It feels painful. It feels intense. So we think, okay, I'm giving birth to this vision now. No, the concern is just the conception of the vision. It's just the conception of the calling. It's not the birth pains. There's an incubation period that is needed. You see, the, the problem... The problem with, um, with a calling is that, firstly, and vision, calling and vision is, firstly, we unknowing, we all want a calling and we all want a vision for our lives. In fact, we already have a vision for your life. If I had to ask you, do you, do you have a vision? You know, uh, some of you might say, no, I don't have a vision for your life. And I say, but where do you see yourself in five or ten years? Oh, no, this is where I see myself. Well, that's your vision. I see myself in a successful job. Or I see myself having completed my studies. Or I see myself being married with children. Or I see my, that's your vision. Everyone, Andy Stanley says this nicely. I don't like all his stuff, but his, his, his leadership stuff is really good. Um, you, can, you can really listen to it and, and, and learn from it and, and, and read it. And he says, you know, everyone ends up somewhere in life. And you can end up somewhere on purpose. <laughs> Because not everyone, everyone ends up somewhere in life, but not everyone ends up somewhere on purpose. For most people, life just happens to them because they don't have an intentional, conscious vision or calling to which God has called them. But you do have a calling. But so often we avoid God's calling and God's vision for our life by avoiding concern. Concern is not nice. It's not comfortable. We don't want concern. But, but here's the problem. Anything that you care about, you'll be concerned for. And if you want to avoid concern, you've got to avoid caring altogether. Uh, C.S. Lewis says it beautifully. Let me, just, let me just read that to you. In his book, The Four Loves, he says, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, in other words, protecting your heart and never feeling any hurt, any concern, any discomfort, any brokenness in your heart, you must give it to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it safe. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. To love is to be vulnerable. Love is very inconvenient in that sense. When you love something, your heart will be broken. Your care will lead to concern. I heard um, someone say once that a mother is only as happy as her most unhappy child. Why? Because you love your children. You're so concerned about them. And when it's not going well with them, you don't feel well. Isn't that true? So deep care always leads to deep concern. And we see this in the life of Jesus as well. One of the things that characterized his life, it says, and Jesus was moved with compassion when he saw them like sheep without a shepherd. When he saw them all broken and, 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 and sick and, and he healed them. When he saw them all confused and he taught them. Jesus was willing to care enough to have his heart broken, and so should we. Um, Andy Stanley says a, a vision, and you, might, you, can, you can also substitute vision for calling there. He, he, in context, he's referring to a God-ordained vision. 
So he's, he's not talking just about vision the way the business world uses it. He's talking about vision that God gives. He, he says a vision is a clear mental picture of what could be fueled by the conviction that it should be. And he says that a vision is a preferred corporate future. How do we want us as a community to look? How do we want to look? Um, and like I said, vision is always born, or con- calling is always called born out of concern. And it's, it's a concern that is born out of the tension of what currently is, on the one hand, and what could be and should be on the other hand. When Nehemiah heard that report, he said, what is, is not as it could be, and it's certainly not as it should be. The people of Israel are in danger, they're in trouble. So they're physically in danger because the walls of Jerusalem are broken down. And they are disgraced. In other words, they are sociologically and psychologically oppressed and in trouble. And so often we, we, we look at Nehemiah, and when we think of Nehemiah, we think of the, the wall builder. He's known as the wall builder, which is a bit unfortunate because Nehemiah didn't care about walls per se. He cared about the walls that those, the, the, the people that those walls protected. I care about walls. I care about these walls and building these walls, but not for the sake of the walls, for crying out loud. Although I think there are parts of the church where the walls are too important. <laughs> But the fact that you are willing to be here in, when the walls are still under construction shows that, you know, for you, it's not about the walls. It's about the people in the walls. And that's as it should be. In fact, when we really understand it, we understand that the Old Testament uses physical pictures to represent spiritual realities. And we understand that we are the living stones that are being built together into a temple of God. Guess where that idea of living stones that Peter takes up in the New Testament comes from? It comes from an Old Testament book. The one that we're reading now. Did you know that? We're going to see that as we go, go along. Okay, and then I said, like I said, concern is not comfortable, but if you avoid concern, you avoid your calling. Don't do that. Um... Then, prayer and planning. In this time, this concern leads to a time of waiting. He doesn't do something practical in, in, immediately. He, he waits. But in that time of waiting, he, pray, he does prayer and planning. Um, initially, his deep concern for God's people and God's city drives him to do seemingly nothing. And then for four months, he does nothing except pray and plan. And this allows God to do a few things. Firstly, it allows God to prepare the vision in him. Now, if, if you want to see concern as the conception of a vision or, or calling, there has to be a gestation period, a pregnancy period, a period where that vision matures and grows and gets ready for birth. Because the, the world is hard on calling and it's hard on vision because both calling and vision Calling and vision implies change. It says this, what is is not what should be and could be, and therefore a change needs to happen. And none of us like change, likes change. None, the world doesn't like change. Change is uncomfortable. We change averse. We try and avoid change. And therefore, if you try and give birth to this vision or this calling prematurely, 
outside of God's timing for it. It might be stillborn or it might die a premature death. And I've seen, how many visions have you seen where people have tried to metaphorically push out that baby too quickly and that baby just wasn't strong enough and it didn't survive the criticism and it didn't survive the opposition and it didn't survive the world, the real world. It sounded good on paper and it was a great idea, but it didn't survive. And often it's because it was someone trying to birth it. The person who received the vision or the calling tried to birth it prematurely. Isn't that exactly what happened with Moses? He had this vision of delivering the people of God. How did he do it? As a prince of Egypt, he goes and kills an Egyptian. Right vision, right calling. Wrong time, wrong method. What happened? God had to send him for 40 years into the school of the desert to go and follow sheep. And in that time, I'm sure he did much of what Nehemiah was doing. He prayed a lot and he planned. He thought about it. And God prepared the vision in his heart and gave him maybe, maybe a, a better idea of what that vision really is. You know, if you're going to try and deliver the people of Israel by killing every Egyptian, it's not only is that not my style, you know, I'm, 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 I'm not a God who's, 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 who's into that uh, way of doing things, but, but also it's going, to, it's going to take you a few lifetimes. It's not going to work. It's not, you haven't thought about this. This, wasn't, this. this isn't even practical. Never mind that it's, uh, that it's not my will. So um, that time of waiting, of praying and planning prepares the vision in him and in us and prepares us for the vision, prepares him, prepares Nehemiah for the vision. And it's very often... When you receive a vision or a calling, if it's a God calling and a God vision, then you were created for it. Then God created you with everything you need to fulfill that calling and vision. And you already have inside of you everything that you need. But what's inside of you is not ready yet. It's not developed yet. It's not mature yet. You maybe haven't learned the skills. You have the basic ability to do something, but you haven't learned the skills yet. You you maybe haven't um, learned the grown in your character yet in, this, in the way in which God needs you to, to, to fulfill this calling on your life. So, so that time of waiting is not just for the vision to mature, but it's also for you to mature, for me to mature, for us to grow and to be ready so that when God's timing is right and He releases us, we can run with it. And after 40 years in the desert, Moses was ready. For Nehemiah, fortunately, it didn't take that long. It only took about four or five months before he was ready. And also, it, it gives God not only time to prepare the vision in Him uh, and to prepare Him for the vision, but to prepare circumstances for the vision. God, and very often, in fact, I want to say primarily in answer to the prayers that we pray during that time of waiting, prepare circumstances for the calling and the vision that He's given us. And we see in the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, which in, in the Hebrew Bible is one book, we see God working providentially behind the scenes to prepare the stage, to set the stage for his people to return and to rebuild the city. And God, in that time of waiting, does that. So that if we try and prematurely birth this calling, we step onto a stage which God has not yet set. We step onto a stage that God has not yet prepared. And I can see some of your 
sort of wheels turning now and thinking, you know, where did I do this? You know, which one of my <laughs> harebrained ideas failed because I was, I was just not patient enough. I, I, I pulled the trigger too quickly. I wasn't quite with God's timing. It was, it was, I, I maybe heard the right thing, but I tried to do it in the wrong way and at the wrong time. Okay, and then just in closing, Nehemiah's name, like I said in the beginning, means Yahweh has comforted. But in order to comfort, uh, for God to comfort his people through Nehemiah, he had to experience significant discomfort. And before we can be comforters, we must experience comfort. You can only, here's, here's, a, here's a principle uh, of ministry, you can only give what you've received. You can only give what you have. Therefore, you can only give what you've received. And if you haven't received comfort, you cannot give comfort. And only to the extent that you've received comfort can you give comfort. Can you minister comfort to others as well. And Christ experienced even more discomfort than Nehemiah did. And in this sense, Nehemiah is only a picture, a shadow of Christ. Think about this. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the king. That was one of the most trusted, and I'll say a little bit more about this next week, the most trusted positions in the kingdom. The king was entrusting his life to that person. Okay? But we also had, it had some risks. I mean, if someone was trying to poison the king, you had to taste all the king's wine and, and taste all the king's food before you know, handing it to the king. So if someone tried to poison the king, you know, you'd die, and the king would say, thank you for your good service. Uh, you know, you're the next cupbearer. <laughs> but, but there were significant perks and privileges that came along with it because there was some danger. And be, you, you were a confidant of the king. The king spoke to you about and an advisor to the king. So the king spoke to you about almost everything. You got a great salary. You lived in the castle with the king. You had to. Wherever the king was, that's where you were. Whatever feast he went to, you went to. So you ate well. It was one of the top jobs in the kingdom. You know, it's, you couldn't be promoted beyond that. He'd reached the top. He'd reached the top. He had the confidence of the king. He had a comfortable life. He had the best job. And he was willing to give all of that up to experience discomfort, go to a foreign country he'd never been in, which is his home country, Judah, to help a people he'd never met, the Jewish remnant. Jesus had a lot more comfort and a much higher position than Nehemiah. He was sitting up at, in heaven at the right hand of the Father with everything in the palm of his hand, all glory, all honor, all privilege, no pain, no concern, nothing wrong, perfection of heaven. And he was willing to give all of that up to come down to earth to us who live in this city that has been broken down so that he can rebuild us, so that he can comfort us. He was willing to experience intense discomfort. And the word discomfort there is an understatement. When he died, he died, to put it very mildly, the most uncomfortable death imaginable. There's a reason why we refer to something when it's really painful. We refer to it as excruciating. And at the middle, in the middle of that little word, excruciating, is the word crux, which is the Latin word for cross. It was the most painful death known to man. And he was willing to suffer that discomfort, if I can call it that, so that he can comfort us. 
And if we experience that, now, I just want to show you just three things. Jesus experienced deep concern for us. It was his deep concern for us that drove him to come from heaven to earth. Jesus cares so much about you that he was willing to die for you. One of my favorite summaries of the gospel by Jack Miller is, um, you s- we, are so, we are so broken and sinful that Jesus had to die for us. And yet we are so loved and accepted that he was glad to die for us. Don't you love that? That's how loved you are. That's how deeply concerned Jesus was for you, number one. Then, talk about praying. Nehemiah said he prayed day and night. Well, Jesus is right now praying day and night for us. Sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us all the time. I mean, I'm sure Nehemiah sort of slightly exaggerated when he said, you know, day and night. Or he meant, you know, sometimes during the day and sometimes during the night. He had to sleep sometimes, you know. Jesus doesn't sleep. He just prays for us the whole time, right now. Not only that, in terms of planning, we see Nehemiah doing some planning because he says, give me success. Success for what? For what I've planned. And we see in the next chapter, he's, he, in those four or five months, he didn't just pray. He planned what he would need to build up the city of Jerusalem again. Well, it says, the Lamb of God, in the book of Revelation, the Lamb of God crucified since the foundation of the world. Can you see how long ago Jesus planned what he was going to do for you and me? in order to build us up, in order to restore us, in order to comfort us. When you've experienced that level of care and prayer and planning done for your benefit, if you've experienced someone willing to experience that level of discomfort so that he can comfort you, then you can experience little discomforts in order to go out and comfort other people. If Jesus was willing to give that much to save us. He was willing to make that biggest of all sacrifices to save us. Shouldn't we be willing to make the little everyday sacrifices in order to serve and help one another? Shouldn't we complain less? Shouldn't we see our little sacrifices in the context of his big sacrifice and say, thank you, Lord, that I can sacrifice with you that I can follow in your footsteps. Do what you do. Love like you love. Isn't that, as we are under construction this year, isn't that the community we're hoping God will construct us into? Amen. Just, just close your eyes and just focus on the Lord. I, I trust the Lord is, is speaking to you through His Holy Spirit and through His Word. Then, for most of us, I presume... We are. We have already responded and said, Jesus, come and comfort me so that I I can comfort others. But maybe if I look at my own fallen human heart, I like other people to care about me. But I'm, you know, sometimes not so quick to care about other people. I I like other people to be concerned about me. (laughs) But I'm not always so excited about bearing the inconvenience the discomfort of being concerned for others. And I think that's something that lives in all of our hearts, our human hearts. Even, even if we're saved, our human hearts are still fallen and under construction in the process of becoming more like Jesus. So if you're a Christian this, this morning, I just want you to be very honest about your own heart. Now, I just want you to take a minute or two and pray and say, God, forgive me. Forgive me for wanting to be so comfortable. 
that I try to avoid being concerned. Forgive me for always complaining about others not doing enough for me, but I myself am slow to do what you've called me to, to do for others because the sacrifice is too big, because it's too uncomfortable. If that at all resonates in your heart, just in your own words, just pray and say, Lord, I repent. Help me to become more like Jesus. I submit to being under construction. Yes, Lord, we just want to repent and admit, Lord, that, Lord, we so naturally gravitate just towards comfort and away from discomfort. We so easily try to avoid concern and we so easily complain instead of serving. We, we so want to be served rather than serving one another. And we just repent of that, Lord God. We want to be a community that reflects you, our leader, our Nehemiah, as it were a community that is willing to experience discomfort in order to comfort others. That's the kind of community we're trusting you to, to, to become even more and more. Thank you, Lord. I just want to thank you, Lord, for, for everyone in this community who's already serving, who's already sacrificing, who's already stepping out and experiencing discomfort in order to comfort others, who's already taking up the calling to build and to serve and to lead like Nehemiah. And I pray that you'll bless us, but I also pray that you'll make us even more so. In Jesus' name. Lord, we submit this year to being under construction. Thank you that you are the master builder and that you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And we pray that as you build us into such a community more and more, step by step, that you will receive all the glory and all the honor, and that the world will be able to look at us and say, they're different. What is happening amongst them is not natural, it's supernatural. God must be at work there, and that you'll receive the glory for it in Jesus' name. I pray your blessing over your people. May they experience your peace in your presence, in your city, in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.